Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Today's podcast is sponsored by Ladder. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance without leaving your home. Just go to ladderlife.com slash gold today to see if you're instantly approved. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile is for people who hate their phone bills and are ready to cut their ties with big wireless. You can cut your wireless bill down to 15 bucks a month and get a plan shipped to your door for free at mintmobile.com slash gold. Well, welcome everybody to the first podcast of 2022. As I said in my last podcast of 2021, 2021, I think was the year of peak speculation. All sorts of crazy stuff happened in 2021. You had the phenomena of meme stocks. You had the introduction of the NFTs. You had the craze in all these altcoins with crazy names. Everything was going up. You had record issuance of SPACs. People were buying pigs in a poke, throwing money at anything with a symbol, not even knowing what they were going to buy. It was a record year for mergers and acquisitions. It was also a record year for stock buybacks. I think about $850 billion in buyback volume, that beat the last record, which was set back in 2018. I think it was about $806 billion in buybacks. Of course, the crazy thing is that companies are buying back stocks at near record valuations. I mean, I can see corporate executives deciding to buy back their stock if their stock is really cheap. But to pay these type of multiples for their stocks is crazy. Now, a lot of the insiders know how crazy it is because as 
corporate CEOs have been authorizing share buybacks. They've been selling their own stock. In other words, the insiders are selling stock to their own shareholders because they're doing share buybacks at the same time that they're selling, which means the insiders are getting a better price because they're able to sell to their own shareholders. It's almost like insider trading, except everybody knows that it's going on and nobody cares. But the guys that are running the companies, they understand how overvalued their stocks are even as they are deciding to commit shareholder money to buying more shares at inflated prices, they're making the decision to sell their own shares. In fact, talking about IPOs, not only was it a record in IPOs, but it was also a record for a special kind of IPOs. And this is initial public offerings of companies that lose money. They haven't even proved that they have an ability to make a profit, yet they're already going public. You know, once upon a time, no companies that were losing money would even consider going public because no respectable Wall Street firm would even entertain the idea of bringing a money-losing company public. After all, you didn't go public until you proved your viability as an enterprise, See, back in the day, somebody would start a business and after years and years of building a business and proving that it worked because you're making a profit, you would then tap into the public markets because you wanted to scale up your money-making business. You would go to investors and say, hey, I've got this great business. Look at all this money that I'm making. Look at my margins. They're really, really good. Now, if you guys give me some money, we can take this money and expand. We can go national or go global. We can take this proven concept and expand it and make even more money. That's when you would tap into the public market because you needed to take your money-making business to the next level and scale it up by making the necessary capital investments. And so public investors would come in at that stage because the business model had already been de-risked by the founders. They put in the seed capital And they did the hard work to prove out the model. And then once they had a proven successful company, then they would go and raise additional money. Well, the way it works now is the IPO process is the exit strategy for the guys that got in early. But they didn't get in early and build a profitable company. All they did is build a loss-generating company that has lots of revenues. They hype up a company, they put in a lot of money to generate a bunch of revenues, but they have no proof that those revenues are ever going to lead to sustainable profits, and they don't even care because they go public as an exit strategy. So in the olden days... The founders really didn't sell any stock in the IPO because all the money raised from the IPO went to fund the capital investment to scale up the business. But now you have these venture capitalists that put the money in early and they exit on the IPO. They get rid of their shares to the investing public that is basically buying a bunch of hype because they're buying into these companies that have yet to prove their viability as a business 
All they do is generate revenue and losses, but investors don't care because they're going to buy them anyway because they think the price is going to go up. It's a huge casino that has been created by the Federal Reserve, and I don't think we've ever seen anything like it before, especially against the backdrop of COVID-19, the fact that we came out of a huge recession in 2020, we've got all of these problems, yet everybody is throwing caution to the wind because the Fed blanketed the economy with cheap money and all of that money went into things like stocks. In fact, the S&P ended 2021 at 26 times trailing earnings. Now that's not a record high, but it's damn close. The highest it got was in 1999 at the peak of the stock market bubble. We got to a little bit better than 29 times earnings before the implosion. Remember, the NASDAQ then went down 80%. So we don't have a good track record of future returns once you get P's this high into the stratosphere. But if you measure the value of the S&P, on a price to sales level, we're even more overvalued now than in 1999 because the price to sales level in 1999 ended at 2.27 times, but we ended 2021 at 3.2 times revenue. So a record high valuation when you measure prices of stocks relative to the revenues of their companies. And of course, as I said, a record year for stock buybacks, companies way overpaying to buy back their inflated shares. In fact, the S&P actually beat the return on the NASDAQ and the Dow. And that's just the sixth time that's happened in the history of those other indexes. In fact, the other five times were in 1984, 1989, 1997, 2004, and 2005. So that's it. And this beat was the biggest beat since 1997. Of course, the Dow, NASDAQ, and Russell 2000 were all up strongly on the year, just not as much as the S&P. The Dow was up 18.73%. The NASDAQ up 21.4%. Russell 2000 brought up the rear up 13.7%. Again, that's significant because that is the index that is most reflective of the U.S. economy and it performed the worst. You know, interestingly enough, the strongest segment of the S&P was energy. The problem is energy is only about 4% of the S&P, so it really didn't contribute that much to the overall returns. But energy is one of the things I got right in 2020, about 2021, because I was pounding the table on this podcast on the energy sector throughout that year. In fact, we came into that year in our managed accounts, we were underweight energy and we took an overweight position during the year as a result of the gift that the market gave us in dramatically overselling both the price of oil and the price of the oil sector. All the stocks that were in energy really got beaten down as oil prices briefly went into negative territory in 2020. And that presented a great buying opportunity for that sector. In fact, energy stocks are already leading the way in the S&P during the first two days of this year. And I'll get to that later in the podcast. But the S&P's near 27% gain in 2021, while a very big gain, it isn't even close to the biggest percentage gain in history. In fact, I counted 
20 years where the S&P beat 2021, just going back to 1926. And I made a note of the six top performing years for the S&P, just to kind of compare that to what was going on. So remember, the S&P closed the year at about 26 times earnings. Now, it closed the prior year at an even higher P. I think it was about 35 or 36 times earnings. And the reason the PE was so high at that point was because COVID had really collapsed corporate earnings. But because of the Federal Reserve and all the monetary stimulus, share prices did not go down along with the earnings. So the PE went up. So the PE actually came down in 2021 from 2020 only because it was so artificially high in 2020 due to that dynamic of collapsing earnings yet rising stock prices thanks to the bad monetary policy of the Federal Reserve. But compare that to these other big years. So the biggest one-year gain for the S&P was in 1933. Now, first of all, that was during the Great Recession. And of course, it happened from very, very low valuations because we had had a big crash in 1929 and we were early in the Great Depression. But we got a 54% gain in the S&P in 1933. But the PE on the S&P at the end of 1932 was 14. And by the end of that 54% rally, we were only at 17.2. So nowhere near the lofty level that we are today. Back then, despite the fact that we had an even bigger rise in the S&P to get there, and these are trailing earnings. I'm sure that on a forward-looking basis, that the PE was even lower back then because we were coming off those recession earnings. In fact, that's pretty much the same story for all these big years. There is some reason that the market was very depressed prior to the big jump. 1954 was the second biggest one-year rise in the S&P. It was 52.5%, but that was just after the end of the Korean War. Korean War ended in 1953, and then we had a big rally in 1954. But look at the PE. At the end of 1953, the PE on the S&P was 10. And by the end of 1954, after a 52% rally, the PE was at 125 way lower than the P.E. is today, and we were ending a war. Same thing in 1945. That was the year that the Second World War ended. We had a 48% gain in the S&P, and the P.E. went up from 14.35 to 19.17. So even after a 48% rise, we only got to 19 times trailing, and I'm sure relative to estimated earnings, the P.E. was much lower than that because earnings were really returning to companies now that the war was ended. The other big year, the fourth biggest year, was 1958, and we were just ending a pretty severe recession in 1958, and that's why we had a 43% surge coming out of that recession, and the P.E. went from 12 and a half to 18 and three quarters. That's it. So even after a 43% rise, we were only at 18 and three quarters. Remember, we're at 26% now, but we're not rising off a big drop. We should have had a big fall in the stock market last year. Then we could have had a rebound this year from depressed levels. But because the Fed intervened, we had a recession, but not a bear market. I mean, we had a bear market, but it was over in the blink of an eye. And by the end of the year, stocks were up, not down. And so we had this huge rally 
coming out of a recession, but not coming off of low stock market valuations because the Federal Reserve never let the stock market valuations fall. It created this financial safety net that prevented the market from dropping. So we rallied off of an already overvalued level. That's the thing that is so different about this rally, not just that it's to an even more insane level of valuation, but that the stock market had a big gain from an already lofty level. All the other big gains came off of relatively depressed levels. The next big rise was 1985. That's number five on the list. That was the first year of Reagan's second turn. We weren't in a recession, but the market was cheap because when the rally began in 1985, the P.E. on the S&P was 10.36. And at the end of that rally, it was at 14.28. So 14.28 is about half of the current P.E. And that's after a 37.5% rally. And that's one of the only big rallies that wasn't coming out of a recession. But clearly, when you're talking about 10 times earnings, stocks were very cheap. And then we had a rally. It's not like today where stocks were insanely expensive and then we had an even more insane rally. The number sixth largest gain was 1975. Again, that was the end of a big recession. It was a two-year recession at that time and we had a 37.2% rise in the Dow. The PE on the Dow at the beginning of 1975 was 8.3%. That's how cheap the Dow was. At the end of this 37% rally, the P.E. was 11.8. We still were below 12. So all of these big rallies have several things in common. The outlier is what we just had, which is having a huge rally on top of an expensive market. And that is why we are at nosebleed levels right now in the stock market. And as I mentioned in my last several podcasts, it's already clear to me that the bubble has burst because the most insane assets, whether it's the meme stocks or a lot of these crazy COVID stay-at-home type stocks or other money-losing stocks, those are the ones that really cracked. And even though the broader averages were making new highs into the end of the year, those stocks were not. Many of those stocks are in bear markets, and that has continued in the first couple of trading days of 2022. But again, I'm going to talk about this year when I finish talking about last year. Unfortunately, a lot of people confuse buying a life insurance policy with making an investment. Investments are about getting a return on your money if you live. An insurance policy is about getting a return if you die. None of us want to die. We're all going to. But if you die too soon, a lot of the people who depend on you are in trouble unless you leave them the resources to take care of themselves. And in many cases, the only way that's possible is with a death benefit. And with term life insurance, you maximize your death benefit for every dollar you pay in premium and the savings can be invested. And the best way to get term life insurance is through Ladder. Ladder is 100% digital when you apply for $3 million in coverage or less. 
There are no doctors, no needles, and no paperwork. To apply, you just need a phone or a laptop and a few spare minutes. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you've been approved. Or if you prefer to talk to someone real, they have a team of licensed agents standing by. And they don't work on commission, so they won't try to upsell you into a whole life policy you don't need. Best of all, no hidden fees, and you can cancel any time. And if you change your mind in the first 30 days, you'll get a full refund. Ladder policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims. And since life insurance costs more as you get older, now's the best time to cross it off your list. So go to ladderlife.com gold today to see if you're instantly approved. That's ladderlife, L-A-D-D-E-R life.com gold to see if you're instantly approved. It wasn't just the stock market where we were setting all kinds of crazy records. Look at the housing market. We had the strongest year in history for national home price appreciation. I think it was about 20%, but 2021 was a greater year for appreciation than the prior record, which I think was 2005, right? That was the biggest year of the housing bubble that eventually blew up in 2007. But 2021, we had greater appreciation than we had during that year. And that's despite the fact that we had lots of people unemployed from a lot of the year. We had a lot of people who completely left the labor market. We were having a pandemic, yet we had set a record high in home price appreciation. Why should that happen? It shouldn't have happened. That's the problem. But it did happen. And it only happened because of the Fed. Again, that's the reason the stock market didn't fall. It should have fell, but it went up instead. Housing prices should have calmed down. Instead of coming down, they went up because of the Fed. And what was powering it? 2021, we set a new record in mortgage lending, right? More money was loaned to people to buy homes in 2021 than in any year in history. And obviously, with record high prices, you would assume that Americans would have to borrow record amounts of money to afford to pay those record high prices. And that is exactly what they did. But we set all kinds of other dubious records one being a record trade deficit. Now, of course, we don't even have the final numbers yet. I think we still have December and maybe even November. I forget. But based on the records that we do have, we are going to shatter the previous record. Probably 2008 or 2007 might have been the previous record. I don't have the exact data with me. But we destroyed that record, uh, record trade deficits. Now, of course, Trade deficits should have come down. Consumption should have come down as a result of COVID. If people aren't working and they're not producing, they should stop spending. But they didn't stop spending because the Fed kept printing money. And so we kept spending anyway, even though we weren't producing. And so that means our trade deficit skyrocketed because we had to buy more and more stuff that was made in other countries that were producing. Now, we didn't set a record for budget deficits. That record was set last year, and that was a tough one to beat. You know, the national debt in 2020 grew by $5 trillion. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Ah, spring. 
Nothing like the world progressing towards summer to inspire your own progress. That's what life's all about in your career, relationships, and your finances. Let's talk about that last one. With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. So your weekly grocery run can feel even more productive and that morning coffee can taste like a little victory. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities to get lower rates on loans, like for a new ride or finally having a home to call your own. Sounds like progress, right? With Chime Secured Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. Members FTIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. In one year. So I'm sure we're going to beat that record at some point, but we didn't beat it in 2021. The national debt only increased by $1.75 trillion this year. The national debt ended 2021 around $29.5 billion, and that was a $1.75 trillion increase over the prior year. Now, that isn't even the second biggest increase in the national debt because the second biggest was 2008. That was the year of the global financial crisis. And during that year, the national debt grew by $1.9 trillion. Now, of course, percentage-wise, it was even a bigger percentage of the then total national debt. But just looking at it in raw dollars, it was $1.9 trillion. So it was still bigger than the $1.75 trillion in debt that we racked up in 2021. But there is a big distinction. In 2008 and in 2020, those were two recession years. 2008 was the Great Recession, right? And the 2008 financial crisis. And 2020 was the COVID recession. We were not in recession technically in 2021. In fact, we don't have all the data yet for GDP growth for 2021. But I think the estimate is about 5.6%. We still need Q4, but if it comes in in line, let's just say that it does, we'd have like 5.6% GDP growth. So 2021 was a year of strong economic growth, the way the government scores it, yet we still grew the national debt by $1.75 trillion. So in other words, we did set a record in government borrowing in 2021. It was the biggest increase in debt, the biggest budget deficits in a single year where the U.S. economy was not in a recession. That is very significant because normally we only get these huge increases in debt when the government is trying to stimulate an economy that is in recession. Yet in 2021, we got a huge increase in debt in an economy that was already supposedly growing on its own, yet we had all this stimulus anyway. I mean, Keynes would be turning over in his grave if he saw this, especially if it was being practiced 
under the guise of being a Keynesian economic stimulus. Because even Keynes, as nutty as he was, wasn't nutty enough to advocate this. Because if you know anything about Keynesian economics, it's that over the course of the business cycle, the budget is balanced. According to Keynes, what government does is when there is a recession and there's not enough demand in the economy, the government supplies the extra demand by running deficits. And that gets the economy going because Keynes didn't believe that the free market could correct itself, that government had to come in and goose the economy with this extra demand. But that once the growth kicked in and we got the payoff for the government deficit spending, when the economy was doing well, that's when the government would run surpluses and pay down the debt that it incurred during the recession. So the government went into debt in a recession and then it ran surpluses during the recovery to pay off those debts. And so no new debt was added. It's just that whenever there was a recession, we went into debt and when we came out of recession, we paid off the debt. He wasn't dumb enough to believe that we can continuously go deeper and deeper into debt. He at least knew that we had to repay the debts. Now, I disagree with his premise. I think economies would recover better if the government didn't go into debt to artificially stimulate demand. I would rather have falling prices do that and have more investment and have an economy that grows without government trying to tinker with it and micromanage it. But my point here is that this is not Keynesianism because we are running enormous deficits during years where the economy is growing. If we are not at least shrinking our deficits substantially during years of economic growth, how do we expect to ever repay the debts that we incur during recession? Because we're going to have another recession. And I think the recession that's coming, we're going to end up spending more than a $5 trillion deficit. Because each time we have another one of these economic collapses, and each one is inevitable because every government bailout sows the seeds of the next crisis, but each bailout is bigger, so each subsequent crisis is bigger, requiring an even bigger bailout, right? It's like the heroin addict. You keep doing it, you have an addiction, and you build up a tolerance, and you keep needing a bigger and bigger dose. So we got a $5 trillion dose of monetary heroin in 2020, rotting up the national debt, and this next recession is going to require an even bigger dose. But if we're never running surpluses when times are good, then how are we ever going to repay the debts? We're not. And so this is not Keynesian. This is way beyond Keynesianism, which says that when the economy is in recession, you run huge deficits. And then when the economy is growing, you also run huge deficits, only slightly less huge than the ones you ran when it was in recession. I don't even know what the school of thought is to describe that type of economics. I mean, nobody's actually invented it yet. I mean, I don't know if it's close to the modern monetary theory, but unfortunately, that's the school of economics everybody seems to believe in and belong to, even though nobody has actually come up with a name for it yet. They still kind of pretend that it's Keynesianism. But again, Keynes would deny any ownership of such an insane economic school of thought.
If one of your top goals in 2022 is spending less and saving more, why are you still paying insane amounts of money every month for your wireless service? Switching to Mint Mobile is the easiest way to save money this year. As the first company to sell premium wireless services online only, Mint Mobile lets you maximize your savings with plans that start as low as $15 a month. By going online only and eliminating the traditional cost of retail, Mint Mobile passes on significant savings directly to its customers. All plans come with unlimited talk and text plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. And with Mint Mobile, you can choose the amount of monthly data that's right for you and stop paying for data you don't need and never use. So switch to Mint Mobile now and get premium wireless service starting at just $15 a month. In fact, if you've got children and you want to get them started, this is the best way to go. When it was time to get a cell phone for my eight-year-old, Mint Mobile was the clear choice. To get your wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get a plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com gold. That's mintmobile.com gold. Cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com gold. Of course, as the national debt was growing in 2021, so too was the size of the Fed's balance sheet. But again, it wasn't a record year. That record was set in 2020 when the balance sheet grew by $3.19 trillion in a single year. It wasn't quite as big an increase in 2021, but still the Fed managed to blow up its balance sheet by $1.4 trillion. And interestingly enough, that beat the increase in the Fed's balance sheet in 2008, which was a $1.34 trillion increase during that year. Now, of course, 2008 was the year of TARP and all those financial crisis bailouts, and yet the Fed managed to expand its balance sheet by a greater amount dollar-wise, obviously not percentage-wise, but dollar-wise in 2021 when we didn't have a recession, we didn't have a financial crisis, yet the Fed decided that it needed to buy even more U.S. Treasuries and other securities in 2021 than it did in 2008. That's why this monetary policy was particularly reckless because the Fed engaged in it at a time when we were already overheated, to use a Keynesian expression, when it comes to money printing from the prior year. We weren't in a recession, so they weren't stimulating a economy in recession. They were stimulating an economy that had, in theory, already recovered from recession. And precisely when the Fed was supposed to be dialing back the stimulus, taking the punch bowl away from the party, it was continuing to spike it with liquor and the effects of that are going to be catastrophic. And I think we're already beginning to get a small taste of that now. I mean, we did when it came to inflation, which was another record in 2021. I think we had record increases in consumer prices during that year. Although according to the government, it wasn't an all-time record. It was just the most we've had inflation-wise as measured by the CPI in about 30 years But of course, 30 years ago, we were measuring consumer prices using a completely different methodology than what we've used in 2021. And so I'm convinced 
if we still measured consumer prices using the same methodology that we used during the 1970s, that we did in fact set a record in 2021 with consumer prices rising more than in any prior year. And I think that record won't last because I think we'll beat it in 2022 because as I've been saying all year, a lot of businesses have been holding back on their price hikes. Those hikes are gonna be announced, a lot of them I think in Q1 of this year, and they're gonna be followed up by even more price increases as the year progresses because I think everybody now realizes that inflation is not transitory and so there's no longer a reason to hold off on raising prices. You just need to raise them and in fact businesses have a lot of catching up to do on cost increases that they have yet to pass on to their customers under the false impression that those cost increases were transitory. Now that they know they're permanent, they need permanent price increases to go along with it. Also, not only the Fed's balance sheet grew by a near record amount, and again, it is a record for an economy not in recession, because in 2020, when the balance sheet grew by over $3 trillion, we were in a recession during that year. We were not in a recession at all in 2021, yet the Fed grew its balance sheet by a larger dollar amount than it did in 2008, the year of not only the Great Recession, but the global financial crisis. But not only was the balance sheet blowing up, but so too was money supply. M2 increased by about 11% on the year, which is smaller than the record increase in 2020, which was 20% increase. And that annual increase in 2020 exceeded the prior five years of money printing all in one year. But the 11% increase in 2021 comes on top of the 20% increase in 2022, making that percentage increase all the more significant because you're raising an already elevated base. So you're talking about a 33% increase in the supply of money in two years. That's a third of all the money that exists wasn't even here two years ago, and it was conjured into existence. And so it's no reason that we're seeing prices rise. We're seeing record increases in real estate prices, consumer prices through the roof, stock prices going up. This is all a result of inflation, and the inflation is going to continue and get much worse. But of course, the craziest part about 2021 was the fact that the public and in particular, investors didn't seem to worry about inflation even after the Fed had to acknowledge that it wasn't transitory. Look at what happened with bond yields. Yeah, bond yields went up off of the ridiculously depressed levels that they hit in 2020, but the yield on the 10-year ended the year at 1.5%. Yes, it rose from 0.92%, which was completely absurd, but 1.5% is a very low rate of interest, especially when you consider that the official inflation rate is around 7%, yet investors are settling for a 1.5% yield on a 10-year treasury in a world of 7% inflation. Completely insane. And of course, in the real world, inflation's 15%, not 7%, because 7% only exists in the government's fantasy world created by a doctored CPI. Yet 
investors are settling for a one and a half percent yield. Only thing crazier than that is settling for a 1.9% yield on a 30-year treasury because that's what investors were doing. And in fact, the yield on 30-year treasuries during 2021 only went up from 1.65% to 1.9%. So all that money printing, massive increase in the Fed's balance sheet, prices going through the roof, consumer prices, real estate prices, stock prices, yet 30-year bond yields barely moved. And of course, even more insane than the paltry increase in bond yields was the fact that gold and silver prices actually went down. Gold was down 4% during the year. It was actually the worst year gold had since 2015. Now, of course, if you remember, 2015 was the year the Fed finally raised interest rates in December of 2015 after having bluffed that it was going to do it for many, many years. So gold sold off on the anticipation of the Fed tightening. And when it finally tightened, that's when gold started to rise. I think the same thing is going to happen. I think the reason that gold was down and not up in 2021 was because people were anticipating the first rate hike. And even if we get the first rate hike sometime in 2022, I think gold is going to rally beforehand because the real tightening is not the rate hikes, but the tapering. And to the extent that the Fed has just started to taper, well, we basically just started the tightening cycle. And if this is anything like the start of the last tightening cycle, it is bullish for gold, not bearish. Investors sold off gold in front of the last tightening cycle. So by the time the Fed actually started to tighten, gold went up. I think the same thing is going to happen this time, only bigger. This should be an even bigger gold rally than the last one. And I think this is going to take us to all-time record highs, especially since the Fed is barely going to get the tightening cycle underway before it has to revert back to an easing cycle. Now, platinum did even worse than gold. Platinum was down 9% on the year. That was the worst year since 2015. But the precious metal that took it on the chin the hardest was silver. Silver dropped by 12.5%. That was silver's worst year since 2014. So one year earlier. And of course, as precious metal prices were falling, the U.S. dollar relative to other fiat currencies was rising. The dollar index was up almost 6.5% in 2021. Now, again, that might seem counterintuitive. We have higher than expected inflation. Why is the dollar going up? Well, it only went up against other fiat currencies. In terms of purchasing power, it clearly went down, although its purchasing power in terms of precious metals went up. And that is the real disparity that I believe is going to be unwound with a vengeance probably in 2022. In fact, if you look at the way gold finished the year, it had a 3% rally during the month of December. So it was down about 7% on the year going into December, but managed a very strong year-end rally. It gave up a little bit of that rally or half that rally on Monday, the first trading day of this year, and then gained back about half of that today. And again, I'm going to talk about the performance this year in a bit, but I want to finish wrapping up 2021. But we had a strong dollar and weak gold prices. But I think the strength of gold that we had at the end of the year, to me, looks like it bodes well for the performance of gold in 2022. Now, while gold had a great December, Bitcoin, fool's gold, 
had a horrible December. In fact, Bitcoin had a December that probably no one in crypto wants to remember. It was down 20% on the month. And it's rare for Bitcoin to be down in December. I mean, Bitcoin hasn't been around that many years. It started in 2009. But I think it's only had three or four Decembers where it was down. The biggest down December was in 2013. Bitcoin dropped about 33% or something like that in December of 2013. That's when it rose to 1150. It hit a record high and then it dropped about a third in December. And then it kept on falling. It didn't bottom out for another 21 months. Bitcoin got as low as 231 after hitting a record high of 1150. And it didn't take out that 1150 high for about four years. That's how long it took to recover. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, if Bitcoin has a similar scenario following this 20% December decline, Bitcoin isn't going to bottom out until it hits around 12,000 in September of 2023. And then it's going to be four years from now before Bitcoin finally gets back up to the prior high. But I don't think it's going to follow the same pattern. I think if we do have an 80% or bigger drop in Bitcoin this time, I think it's down for the count. I don't think it's going to get up and make new highs like it has done in the past. I think this is going to be Bitcoin's last hurrah if we collapse from here. And in fact, everybody who's talking about Bitcoin and how well it did in 2021. And again, I pointed this out in my last podcast. Everybody's talking about the 60% gain because if you measure the price of Bitcoin on December 31st of 2020, right? And you look at it December 31st, 2021, you take the full year and you see a 60% gain. And everybody thinks, well, great. Bitcoin was up 60%. That was a great year for Bitcoin. Well, it was a great year to sell your Bitcoin. So if you already own Bitcoin, Going into 2021, it was an excellent time to sell. You had a whole year of great opportunities to sell Bitcoin. You could have sold some Bitcoin as high as 69,000, but you had lots of opportunities to sell above 60,000, above 50,000. The whole year, you had very high Bitcoin prices to sell into. But that also means that people buying Bitcoin in 2021 all paid very high prices because Bitcoin finished the year at about 46, 47,000, something like that, when most of the people who bought Bitcoin during the year paid north of 50,000. A lot of them paid north of 55 or 60,000. In fact, the vast majority of people who bought Bitcoin during 2021 are down. In fact, a lot of people are down quite a bit. And I read that half the people who own Bitcoin didn't buy any until 2021. And so all those people or the vast majority of those people are losing money. Now, unfortunately, there are a lot of people 
who owned Bitcoin before 2021 who did not take advantage of the opportunity to sell because 80% of the people who own Bitcoin have yet to sell any. So for those people, 2021 didn't make a difference because they didn't ring the cash register. But if you are one of the people who owns Bitcoin and you didn't sell, you've got to ask yourself one question. Who did? Right? It's like that old adage about being at the poker game. And if you don't know who the patsy is, it's you. Right? Well, if you're still holding all your Bitcoin, you're the patsy because somebody sold. 2021 was a record year for Bitcoin marketing, promotion, ad dollars, the institutional inflows, yet the price didn't go up. I mean, they ramped it up in January. Remember, it was in February of last year when Bitcoin crossed above 50000 for the first time. That's when everybody started putting laser beams on their eyes, on their profile pics in Twitter and other places. And here we are at the end of the year, or now we're early 2022, and Bitcoin is back below 50,000. Again, it's around 46,000. How many people believed when they were putting laser beams on their eyes in February that almost a year later, the price of Bitcoin would be lower, not higher, because those laser beams were supposedly going to remain on until the price of Bitcoin hit 100000 because I guess everybody was laser focused and they were going to hold on with their diamond hands and not sell any Bitcoin until it hit 100000 Well, somebody sold. Somebody with laser beams on their eyes was selling anyway. They were just hoping that other people didn't sell so that they could. And despite all the rosy price forecasts, because a lot of people expected Bitcoin to go well above 100000 in 2021. In fact, one of the biggest Bitcoin pumpers, who's a regular on CNBC, Tommy Lee, in fact, he's a CNBC contributor, but he manages a fund even as late as October of 2021, when Bitcoin was still maybe 57,000 or so, the guy was still forecasting that Bitcoin would hit 100,000 by the end of the year. Well, instead of going up to 100,000, it actually fell back below 50,000. Again, all the gains were in by mid-February. I think five weeks into the year, the price of Bitcoin was higher than it was at the end of the year. So they ramped it up and then they spent the whole year dumping what they pumped. It was a massive year of distribution where a lot of the big guys who got in early took advantage of the hysteria to get out. And to me, it looked like a year of distribution. And I think the bottom is dropping out already in 2022. In fact, it started to drop out in 2021. But it's not just Bitcoin. It's all these crazy pie in the sky uh, stocks that really got bid up that are getting killed which I think is a good segue to take a look at what's going on in the markets. We're only two trading days in to the new year, and these themes are already playing out because look at the Dow Jones is up 1.27%, closed at a new record high today. That was the strongest of the indexes. The S&P was only up about half as much. In fact, it was slightly down today. It was up 0.6% for two days, and it's being weighed down by the NASDAQ, which had a big drop today and is now down 0.35% on the year. It is the only index that is negative on the year. In fact, the Russell 2000 is up 1.2%. But the reason the NASDAQ is down is because so many of these themed tech stocks that were the darlings of the speculative crowd in 2021 are getting killed 
already in 2022. I mean, look at some of the declines today and the markets closed off their lows, but look at the ARK Innovation Fund. That's Kathy Woods. That was down 4.4% today. It was down over 6% at one point on the day. It almost made a new 52-week low before recovering, but Peloton did make a new 52-week low, down another 4%, closing well off the intraday low. But remember, that stock was at 171 last year. It's at 33. Look at Robinhood. That thing got robbed. It was down 5% today. It made a 52-week low, I think, intraday, but closed off the low. But it's at 1740. It hit a high of $85 last year. Look at Square. It was one of the biggest drops on the day, although it recovered by the close to only be down 4.7%. But it made a 52-week low of 151. That stock almost hit 300 last year. It was at 289, so a 50% drop in Square. Jack Dorsey's other company, Twitter, also down better than 4% today, also hitting a new 52-week low. It closed at $40.85. That is almost a 50% drop from the $80.75 high from last year. One of the things that these stocks have in common, apart from Jack Dorsey, though he has already, I guess, stepped down at Twitter, is that they both are associated with Bitcoin, with blockchain, right? And they're getting killed, as is everything now that is associated with the cryptocurrency. Look at MicroStrategy, down another 2.7% today, closed at 551. That stock was as high as 1,315 last year. So as Michael Saylor is blowing all his earnings, buying more Bitcoin, look what's happening to the price of his stock. Michael Saylor wants all these executives to add Bitcoin to their balance sheet. What good is it doing MicroStrategy when the stock is stuck in a major bear market? And I can go on, there's a long list of former high flyers that are deflating and I include Bitcoin in there and then you can see what's happening to the uh, Bitcoin trust grayscale and the other ETFs they're not really down on the year they're about flat but the interesting thing was a lot of these high-flying tech stocks that got crushed today bounced on Monday there was some kind of dead cat bounce where everything went up on Monday and then the value stocks kept going up on Tuesday and the tech stocks rolled over or the high flying tech stocks and not only surrendered all of their Monday gains, but they turned them into losses. The interesting thing is when all the crap was rallying on Monday, Bitcoin didn't rally with it. So it's like Bitcoin doesn't rally as a safe haven asset and it doesn't even rally as a risk on asset. I think basically it's lost all of its friends on Wall Street, although you wouldn't know that from listening to all the hype. But I think we're again getting very close. That's why I was pounding the table on my last podcast saying if you are in Bitcoin, you just need to sell. I mean, even if you are long term bullish you could still sidestep this next collapse. You know, you don't have to marry Bitcoin, just date it, right? You could sell, go to the sidelines, and if you really want to buy back in, you could do it a lot cheaper. I wouldn't buy back in at all, but I certainly wouldn't want to ride this thing down. So now is the time to take chips off the table because a lot of people have already done that. That's why Bitcoin didn't go up despite all of this pumping and advertising because the smart money is selling. And if you want to do the smart thing, you're going to sell too. Now, of course, the smart money who's selling, they're not publicly admitting that, right? Because that would be dumb. They don't want the price of what they're selling to collapse. So they're going to keep talking about how great it is and how nobody else should sell while they're quietly you know, selling their own stock. 
No, I wonder, you know, we just got the guilty verdict for Elizabeth Holmes regarding Theranos, right? And basically lying to investors to get them to buy stock in her company. Well, look, we got a lot of other people doing the same thing. Kathy Wood telling lies about her funds. Lots of people in the crypto space lying to hype up their stocks. All this stuff is going on. I mean, a lot of these executives are probably not going to go to jail like Elizabeth Holmes But in many cases, they're doing the same thing. I mean, maybe it's not to the same degree. It's hard to say. I don't have all the facts behind what these people are saying. But again, there's an old Wall Street expression, putting lipstick on a pig. And in this case, with a lot of these stocks and a lot of these cryptocurrencies, it's not just lipstick they're putting on the pig. They're putting on eyeshadow, mascara. You know, they're dressing the pig up in a gown with high heels. They're doing all sorts of things to disguise this pig. But at some point, people are going to get a good whiff of what they bought and, you know, As I said before, there's going to be a lot of lawsuits. Whether or not they're criminal, it remains to be seen. But you have an opportunity to sell your Bitcoin. As I am recording this podcast, we are at 46,000 and change. That is still a very high price for what basically amounts to nothing. But I think the most significant market development of the first two days of 2022 is the bloodbath in the bond market. Bond prices collapsed in two days. This is one of the biggest two-day declines I've seen in a while. In fact, yesterday, Monday, was the biggest one-day decline. We saw a huge increase in yield. So the yield on the 10-year, which ended 2021 at 1.512, after two days is at 1.668. That is a huge move in two days. The yield on the 30-year has moved from 1.9 to 2.077, almost 2.1. This is a big move in the bond market in just two days. But what's more ominous is if you look at the chart, there is a long way for bond yields to rise. And what's amazing is how complacent everybody is. Because even if the Fed is going to be able to successfully reduce the inflation rate to 3%, why should the yield on a 10-year treasury still be below 2%. Why should it be below 3%? It shouldn't. So in an environment where the Fed is not expanding its balance sheet, and it won't be in a few more months, right? It will no longer be doing QE because it will have tapered the QE program to zero. And early next year or March or April of next year, it's going to start raising rates. So if we have 3% plus inflation and a Fed that is not monetizing debt and is raising interest rates, why should the yield on a 10-year treasury be below 3%? It shouldn't. And when the market comes to terms with that, it shouldn't take a long time to reprice bonds. Bonds could implode. We could have a crash in the bond market. That is a risk that nobody seems to acknowledge, a bond market crash. It is a real possibility, and that crash could happen soon. And of course, that crash would ignite a stock market crash. Now, the only thing that would prevent a bond market crash would be if the Fed does not do what it is pretending to do. See, if you believe the Fed, then the bond market is going to crash. The only reason the bond market won't crash is that the Fed is lying. But if people knew the Fed was lying, the price of gold would be soaring. The dollar would be tanking. The reality is people believe the Fed anyway, but they still are in fantasy land on bonds. Why should bond yields stay this low if we have a Fed that's fighting inflation? Those two things are impossible, right? It's one or the other. If the Fed fights inflation, 
bond yields must rise substantially. The only way they won't is if it doesn't fight inflation, because the only way it can stop bond yields from rising is to expand QE, to print more money, to create more inflation, to artificially suppress bonds. But then, of course, bonds are screwed either way, right? You're damned if they do and you're damned if they don't as a bond investor. Because if you own bonds right now and the Fed actually fights inflation, your bonds are going to crash. The value of your bonds are going to collapse, the price, because yields are going to go way up. On the other hand, if the Fed doesn't fight inflation because it's not going to let bonds collapse because it knows that the whole economy will collapse along with it, then the Fed prints massive amounts of money. And so the inflation rate doesn't come down to 3%. It goes well above 10%, in which case you lose even more money on bonds because you get wiped out on inflation. It seems very simple, but investors, for some reason, don't understand that. We have an inflation problem. Either the Fed solves the inflation problem, in which case bonds go down, or it doesn't solve the inflation problem and bondholders get wiped out to inflation. It is one or the other. But the markets are acting as if the Fed can fight inflation, yet bond yields can stay below 2% for the 10-year. In fact, I heard this one guy on CNBC, I think I mentioned it on my last podcast, saying that it doesn't even matter how high the inflation rate gets. Yields are never going to go above 2% on a 10-year treasury because there's just so much demand for treasuries as if nobody even cares how much they're losing in treasuries. They're going to buy them anyway, which is nonsense because The pretext for buying treasuries is because you want a safe haven. Well, if inflation is 10% or 20%, what kind of refuge can you find in a 2% yielding U.S. Treasury? I mean, what's safe about losing 8% of your money a year or 18%, you know, if inflation is 20% or whatever? So clearly there's a point where bond investors recognize that inflation is bad for bonds and dump bonds instead of thinking inflation is good for the dollar because they expect the Fed is going to raise rates. The reality is we're going to have more inflation. And instead of putting out the fire, the Fed is going to throw gasoline on it. But if they don't, bonds are going to crash. And I think that right now bond prices are going to keep falling until the Fed blinks. The Fed is going to have to drop the pretense that it's going to do what everybody thinks it does. Because once the momentum starts to build and the bond market really starts to break down, then the technicals are going to take over. And it's not really going to matter what people think. It's just going to be liquidation of bonds based on breaking key chart levels. And people are going to look at these charts and wait a minute, this long-term bond bull market is dead. And now we're in a major bear market that will continue unless the Fed does something about it. But the only thing that it could do is create more inflation. And that's going to turn the momentum in gold. Because when bond prices got clobbered on Monday, gold immediately tanked. Gold was down 25 bucks, back down to 1600 Because we closed the year around 16 and a quarter. Because we had a nice rally on the final day of the year. And then gold gave back the rally of the prior two days. We gained back almost half those losses today. Gold rose about $13, so back up at $18.14. So it's encouraging that not only did gold hold $1,800, but it was able to rally on a day where bond prices fell and bond yields rose. But the initial reaction to the rise in rates is what caused traders to sell gold because that is the reflexive move that anything that is bad for bonds is also bad for gold because higher interest rates hurt gold. 
we're only getting higher nominal rates. People still don't understand the distinction between nominal and real. What is bad for gold is high real interest rates. High nominal rates are indifferent. In fact, if nominal rates are high because of inflation, that's good for gold. And in fact, if the Fed is behind the curve and if rates are rising more slowly than the inflation rate, that's super good for gold. Well, that is what's happening because the Fed is still at zero. Inflation is getting worse and the Fed is still at zero. They haven't even started the race. So inflation is building a bigger and bigger lead. The Fed is right now falling further and further behind the inflation curve. Meantime, it's not even bluffing that it's ever going to catch up. All it's talking about is eventually taking a few baby steps. Inflation is sprinting into the horizon. And what is the Fed saying it's going to do? Well, maybe in March, April, or May of next year, we're going to raise rates by a quarter point. So they're going to take a little baby step. How are they going to catch inflation that has been in a full sprint for over a year? So they're not even talking about catching up to inflation, let alone getting out in front of it, which is what would really be required. So nothing the Fed is even talking about doing is negative for gold, and they probably won't even do what they're talking about doing, which is even more bullish for gold. So the markets need to figure this out. And I think that if we get a lot of downward pressure on the bond market, which ultimately builds into the stock market, it's already in the tech stocks or the most vulnerable of the tech stocks. It hasn't stopped the blue chip tech stocks from rising. In fact, Apple Computer, which did finish down on the day 1.4%, managed a new all-time record high intraday. And in fact, at one moment, it became the first company to sport a $3 trillion market cap, making it the most valuable company in the world, although it didn't hold on to those gains. But if the bond market collapse accelerates and potentially turns into a crash, and it starts to bring down not just the high flyers, right? Not just the generals, but more of the troops, then it's going to be the come to Jesus moment for the Fed because now the Fed is going to have to say something. Now we're going to get some Fed minutes that are going to come out tomorrow afternoon. I don't know that there'll be anything significant there because the last time the Fed met, I don't think they were that concerned about the markets, but their rhetoric could change very quickly when the market changes. Meanwhile, we're going to get more economic data that comes out. We get the non-farm payroll report on Friday, and I'll do another podcast probably later that day to go over the implications of that report and the way the market reacts. 